Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we'll be looking this morning, uh, especially at verse 52, the Christian's supreme example of growing. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? We'll begin in verse 41. Luke says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Father, we are so grateful to read a passage like this as we think about the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. First, we're grateful for the fact that He reconciled us to you. He paid our sin debt. And through Him and Him alone, we today have peace with God. But Lord, we're also grateful for the life that He lived, for His conduct, for His uh, example that He set. And Lord, I pray that we would take in more of that this morning from this verse and that we would understand it, that You would give us clarity of thought Lord, I pray that you would be with my words as I preach the message. I, I realize that all I can do is preach to ears. It takes your heart, your, or your spirit rather, to preach to hearts. And God, I pray that you would do that this morning. That you would bring about conviction. That you would challenge us that there would be some new goals that we would set for the next year as a result of this message. Lord, give us understanding and your grace today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, the Bible instructs us that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. I want you to think about that verse for a minute. That we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And so that begs the question, am I continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord? Are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord? Is the discipleship process taking place in your heart and in your life? 
It ought to be enough that God has commanded us to do so. But even more importantly, I think, may be what we find in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that it is God's desire for His Holy Spirit to take His Word, to bring the two together as we read and study His Word, and through that process that we would be conformed more to the image of Christ. God wants us conformed to the image of Christ. And this text here says that Jesus grew. Now, let's look this morning at what the Bible says about Jesus growing. Now, if you just stop and think about it a moment, that that is an astounding thought to meditate on. The fact that Jesus grew. Now what we are confronted with in this text is the humanity of Jesus Christ. The humanity of Jesus Christ. Now please allow me to digress a moment in the introduction to be a little bit more lengthy in the introduction. I want to talk a moment about some things related to the to the doctrine of the incarnation because as we get into this passage I think it's going to help us to understand it better. When we think about the deity of Jesus Christ and we think about the humanity of Jesus Christ we need to think about some of the decisions of the past that were made in the church that help us to clarify this doctrine about the person of Christ. What are we to make of Luke 2.52? What are we to make of this verse? What What are we to make of the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ? You see, that's what we believe. We believe in the full humanity of Jesus Christ and likewise the full deity of Jesus Christ. And both are important. You see, he had to be divine to be sinless and to offer himself for us on the cross. But he also had to be human to be like us, to carry our sin as the second Adam. He was like us so that he could relate to us and could relate to our struggles in every regard yet without sin. Now the correct understanding or the orthodox understanding of this mystery that Jesus possessed two natures in one person, two natures in one person, it's known as the hypostatic union. Now folks, this is a very important matter to understand. It's not a doctrine that is out there on the edge somewhere. It's it's not a, a doctrine that's just reserved for those in the academic world because you see, we're dealing with the proper biblical understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our proper understanding of the one that we call Master and Lord and Savior, a proper understanding of Him ought to be very important, very crucial to every single child of God. Now there's been some great abuses in people's minds about the two natures of Christ in one person. Maybe somebody here has even struggled with that. 
There was one position known as Apollinarianism put forth by a man named Apollinarius. He was the bishop of Laodicea around 361 A.D. Now he taught that the one person of Christ had a human body but not a human mind or spirit. Jesus' body was human, but his mind and spirit were not. His mind and spirit were divine. Now, of course, that was a position that was rejected as being unbiblical and heretical. And then there was Nestorianism. Nestorius was a popular preacher in Antioch, and and then he became the bishop of Constantinople in 428 A.D. He taught that there were two separate persons in Christ. There was a human person and a divine person. And so as Jesus was walking around on this earth, he always had two different people doing battle within him. Sometimes uh, the human person took over more and sometimes the divine person, depending on whatever the circumstance may demand. Again, that was a position that was rejected. Finally, there was monophysitism. This was popularized by Eutychus, the leader of the monastery at Constantinople. Now, he taught that the nature of Christ uh, was taken up and absorbed. The human nature of Christ was taken up and absorbed into the divine nature. So that both natures were changed somewhat and formed an entirely new third nature. Now think of it this way. Let's say over here you have a tall glass of water. And over here you have a single drop of ink. And you take the drop of ink and you put it into the glass of water and the water seems to completely absorb the ink. The ink's still there, but the water overshadows it. The water absorbs it. And now what you have is neither pure ink nor pure water. You have some kind of hybrid between the two. That's what Eutychus taught, and again, that was a position that was rejected. And so thankfully, along comes the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, and what all they had to say about this. And folks, all of this is very important, whether or not you realize it or not. You see, they helped to hammer out the proper biblical understanding of the incarnation of Jesus Christ that we've just celebrated here at Christmas. 1,700 years later, we are still indebted to their insights on this matter. Now, as they pointed out, Jesus had two distinct natures in one person. Two natures in one person. Each is complete. Each nature is fully preserved but in one person. Now concerning his humanity, they said that he had a reasonable body and soul or mind. For example, if you were to have walked up to Jesus, if you were alive back when Jesus walked the earth uh, as a man, and you walked up to Jesus when he was four years of age, 
And you ask the four-year-old Jesus, Jesus, can you tell me about this man named Einstein that's going to live centuries from now? And, and tell me all about his theory of relativity and explain for me E equals MC squared. Could Jesus, four years of age, say, yeah, you know, sit down on this rock over here and I'll explain all of this to you in detail? Could Christ have done that four years of age? Now, careful how you answer that question because you might be a heretic. You see, that's what they were dealing with. They were dealing with truth and they were dealing with heresy. They came up with their famous statement concerning his humanity that Jesus had a reasonable body and mind. Yes, in his deity he knows everything. He's sovereign God. But in his humanity, no, he did not. And that's why he said on one occasion, No man knows the hour of my return. Not the angels in heaven, nor even the Son of Man, but only the Father. And so there were things in Jesus' humanity that he did not know. He had to grow. He had to learn. Now it's a mystery, I know, but as fully divine, yes, Jesus knows everything, but in his humanity, no, he had to learn, much like you and I learn. And so in the incarnation, you have the hypostatic union, the union of both natures, the deity and the humanity of Christ, each nature complete without destroying or altering the other nature at all. Two natures in one person. Not two natures in two persons. Nor two natures creating an entirely different third nature. But two natures in one person without either nature destroying or diminishing the other. Two natures in one person. We know that on the one hand, Jesus is fully divine. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's, he's sovereign God. And God is fully complete. You can't have God growing or learning because God is omniscient. God knows everything. God is omnipresent. If God had to learn at any given point, then he would cease to be God at that point. As sovereign God, God knows everything. But keep in mind that Jesus wasn't just fully divine, he was also fully human. He was the God-man. And so as a man, he had to learn. Think of that. He came to earth as a man. Paul says in Philippians 2, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The Bible says that he did this, that he might be our sin sacrifice and that he might taste death for everyone. 
Also, he did this that he might experience everything that we've experienced and be our example and also be our sympathetic high priest. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Now folks, you and I ought to be grateful for that. Because today as we go before God in prayer, the Bible says that Jesus is at the, he's at the right hand of the Father and He is our advocate. He's making intercession for us. And the one who is there at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us understands what it's like to face all the struggles that men face because he's been here. He walked in our shoes. And so we have a high priest, we have an advocate who's able to intercede for us sympathetically and empathetically because he was a man. And so while Jesus never sinned in his humanity, we learn something astounding here in Luke 2. We learned that Jesus grew. And being that example, it was necessary for him to grow just like we grow. Now folks, the gospel writers don't tell us very much about the childhood years of Christ. Now I know that there are some non-canonical gospels out there that Protestants reject because you read those non-canonical gospels and it's pretty apparent they're, they're written like myth and, and fantasy and legend. Uh, we, we don't, they're, they're not on the same ground at all as our four canonical gospels. When we come to the four canonical gospels we see that there's very little recorded about the life of Jesus in his childhood. And so I'm glad that Luke includes this passage for you and I to read. Because in this passage you and I see how Jesus grew. He grew in four different areas of life. What we see here is a picture of very stable growth and very balanced growth. And the life of Christ in that regard becomes a great example for me and you. Now the first thing I want you to take note of this morning is we are to follow the example of Jesus in growing intellectually. In growing intellectually. The Bible says here in verse 52 that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom. Folks, God has given us our minds. Jesus was asked on one occasion, what is the greatest commandment of all? And he responded by saying, the greatest commandment of all is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your body, your soul, your strength, and your mind. You need to love God with your whole self and with your mind. That was the greatest commandment that Jesus laid down. Now, sometimes in the past, preparing your mind intellectually has been viewed with suspicion in certain Christian circles. And that's tragic. I think of the primitive Baptists that arose during the 19th century. The primitive Baptists were against education. Especially in education among their clergy. 
They thought that if a man had the, the Word of God in one hand and he possessed the Spirit of God, he didn't need anything else. Why did he need schooling? And so they frowned upon any kind of education. Now, folks, it's true that the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit will be our teacher and our instructor, but nonetheless, we need to be educated on the Word of God. We need to develop our minds as a very important part of our Christian growth. In fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 1.13 that we need to gird up the loins of our mind for action. He's using that image of how people in ancient times wore the long flowing robes. And if they wanted to go anywhere quickly or do any kind of hard labor, they had to gather up their robe and they had to use their tie that was around their waist to tie the robe up so it would be out of their way. It was an image of preparedness, being prepared to work. And Peter plays off of that image and he tells believers we need to gird up our minds for action. We need to be people who are thinking people who think about God and think about the Christian life and think about the implications that all of this has on our life. Christianity isn't simply meant to touch our hearts, it's meant to also touch our minds. Paul in Romans 12 too said do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The proverb says as a man thinketh in his heart so is he. That right there shows the connection between the mind and the heart. As a man thinketh in his heart so is he. And so we're to be convinced in our minds and convinced in our hearts. Now That also begs the question, if I'm to grow in my Christian faith intellectually, how do I do that? I want to give you four thoughts on that. First of all, feed on the Word of God. Feed on the Word of God. What did Paul say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? He said, all Scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Folks, what do we have here in the word of God? We have God's thoughts. We have revealed to us by God what he wants us to know concerning salvation and the Christian life. And so we need to be studying this book. We need to be studying this book not just casually reading a few verses and putting it down. But we need to be studying it in depth, meditating upon it, memorizing it, giving reflection to the Word of God because through the Word of God, God sharpens our minds and He teaches us the things that He wants us to know. So if I'm going to grow intellectually in the Christian life as a believer, I need to know God's Word. 
Secondly, we need to feed our minds on good Christian classics and theology. Now sadly, we don't read much as a society anymore. And, and yet at the same time, we are blessed today to have such a rich storehouse of treasures uh, of books in this regard. And so you and I in 2014 really have no excuse whatsoever for a flabby mind. Now you mentioned theology to some people and they would just about as soon jump out a window. But folks, what is theology? Theology is the study of God. It ought to be unthinkable. Thinkable. It ought to be unimaginable for a Christian who claims that God is the most important person in his life. God is the most important person or the most important thing in his life. Nothing in life takes precedence over God. For a Christian to confess that and yet at the same time have no desire whatsoever to learn more about God. That's terribly inconsistent. How can somebody who says God is number one in my life not be interested in learning more about God? I mean, you got to wonder in a situation like that, is their faith even real? Is it authentic? Because the one thing a believer ought to want to know more about, they ought to want to know more about the one that they call Savior and Lord. And so we read what others have said about the Word of God. We realize that God has used many people through the ages to write things concerning theology and concerning the Bible that have a great deal to teach us. We don't live in some kind of vacuum. Believers have a great deal to teach one another. And as we read what some of these great writers of the past have written, it has a way of enriching our lives, expanding our thinking on the Bible and on a relationship with God and helping us to live life as a better Christian. And so we ought to feed on biographies about missionaries, biographies about Christian leaders, different books that tell us things about the doctrines in the Word of God and, and help illuminate these doctrines to our mind. These ought to be things that are very interesting and desirable for a follower of Jesus Christ. Folks, shame on us today as the church. If all we're doing is reading the Sports Illustrated and, and this kind of magazine, this kind of book, all kinds of things about the world, everything that's out there, but we're not reading anything that will grow us in our faith. What a tragedy that is. So feed on the Word of God and feed on books that Christian authors have written that will enrich your mind and your heart. Thirdly, we need to realize this is a lifelong challenge. At 92 years of age, Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of our greatest Supreme Court justices uh, of the past, was reading in his library and a friend asked him what he was doing. He smiled and he said, I'm improving my mind. 92 years of age, 
I'm improving my mind. Cato, the Roman scholar, started studying Greek when he was in his 80s. Somebody asked him why in the world he would start studying a new language when he was in his 80s. You know how he responded? He said, because it's the earliest age that I have left. I've told Dr. Willis before, this, this is where I think he's been a great example to the church. In his 80s. He's still digging. He's still learning. Still taking courses. He handed me a flash drive last month and wanted me to hear a, a lecture a university professor that he'd been taking a course and listening to and wanted me to hear it. He's always challenging uh, himself that way, realizing that learning as a believer ought to be a lifelong pursuit. Folks, the people who have impacted the church the greatest, you, you think of some of these great minds in Christian life. And, and their books that have written and what they've done to challenge us. I, I think today of all the writings of Alexander McLaren. He was known as a prince of Bible expositors. You, you can get the, the complete works of Alexander McLaren. Still, a, still a, a, uh, a favorite among preachers today. Alexander McLaren dedicated himself to the ministry, to preaching the Word of God. He said, I'm going to devote myself. I'm going to be about one thing, and that's learning and knowing the Word of God so I can communicate it to my audience. And he would set aside 60 hours uh, every week to develop and study for one message, 60 hours. And when you read his expositions, you can tell the richness in them. He learned the Greek and Hebrew, the original biblical languages. Every single day he studied from the Greek and the Hebrew. Keep his mind sharp. G. Campbell Morgan, another giant of the Christian faith, who, who pastored Westminster Chapel in London. He was said to have impacted so many souls for Christ because he had such a great mind and a great soul. Somebody said they didn't know whether it was his spiritual intellectuality or his intellectual spirituality. But with such a hot soul and a full mind, he was able to go on and influence many for Christ, even down to the present day folks think about us are we really prepared intellectually to be a witness of our Christian faith some of us rarely do anything whatsoever to prepare ourselves intellectually to be better servants of Christ we do well I do well, you do well, all of us to cut off the TV a little more and spend some time reading something that would enrich our walk with Christ. The truth of the matter is, if you're going to live out your faith in the postmodern marketplace of the 21st century, you're going to have to grow intellectually in your faith. You see, in generations past, you could tell people, I believe, why do you believe something? I believe it's a matter of faith. That's good enough. Just believe. But folks, you don't tell people today that. They want to know why. Why do you believe that? And why should I believe that? 
It's no wonder Peter said what he said in 1 Peter 3.15 when he said you need to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and you need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have within you. Could you do that? Could you give a defense of your Christian faith? If you bump into an atheist or agnostic in the workplace uh, tomorrow and they ask you why you believe what you believe, would you be able to present a reasoned defense of why you believe? You see, we need to grow intellectually like Jesus did. He grew in wisdom, the Bible says. The two motivations of why we need to do that, first of all, so we'll be better prepared as servants of Christ to meet the challenges of today. But secondly, and this ought to really be the the one that gets us, secondly, just knowing that the one we call Lord and Savior grew in wisdom. That ought to be enough. That ought to settle the case right there for any believer. That if my Lord and my Savior grew in wisdom, then I need to grow in wisdom. Second, second thing we see about Jesus here. We're to follow the example of Jesus in growing physically. The Bible says here, he grew in stature. Now, We know that today there is an absolute obsession with the body that's wrong. It's egotistical. It's fleshly. It's ungodly. The healthcare industry has gone nuts. It is a multi-billion dollar business. Business. There are all kinds of supplements and equipment and and health foods and medicines and lotions and tonics and and on and on. There's just a never-ending supply of those kind of things. And then if people still don't get the results that they want, they can go under the knife. Plastic surgery today has grown at an astounding pace. People have gone fanatical with their looks. But there needs to be balance and perspective. On the one hand, yes, we need to take care of our bodies. We don't want to be like the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, for example. Remember them? They said that all matter doesn't matter. All that matters is spirit. Such a dangerous influence on the early church because some of them tried to teach Christians you can do anything you want to with your body. You can engage your body in any kind of activity just so long as you're giving attention to the Spirit. That's not right. Not right at all. So we don't want to be like the Greeks who said the body doesn't matter. How ironic that Plato was one of the ones who said that. Plato himself was a stunningly handsome man. And it said that he had a body, a physique, that any modern day uh, athlete would just salivate over to have a body like that. And yet Plato was one who said the body doesn't matter at all. Body matters. To the Hebrew mind... All of us, body, soul, and spirit, we are created in the image of God. And Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Your body matters. So be careful with the flesh. Don't worship the flesh, but take care of it. Eat right, exercise. But again, balance. We're not to be flesh fanatics. Paul told Timothy, bodily exercise profits little, whereas spiritual exercise profits much. But while we don't want to be flesh fanatics, if we don't take care of ourselves physically, we won't have the energy that we need to minister. And for a Christian, that ought to be a big issue right there too. If you ignore the flesh and allow the flesh to go downhill, guess what? It's going to limit your whole life and everything you attempt to do. It's going to put a cap, a lid on what you're able to do for Christ. Incidentally, some of the young people, you, you think about going to a mission field today and mission boards now are very much concerned about your overall health. They're also looking at the issue, are you healthy enough in body? Are you healthy enough in body to go to a mission field and have the energy and the good health to be able to carry on the work there before they invest thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into you? So that ought to be another reason we try to look after ourselves physically so I don't end up limiting my effectiveness. And boy, preachers today, we do a lousy job at this. Insurance industry lists us as one of the most unhealthy professional groups out there. I guess too many church fellowships, too much fried chicken and banana pudding. Dr. Lewis Thomas, who taught at Yale Medical School, discusses what he calls the seven healthy life habits concept. Blue Cross picked up on these and ha has promoted them. Eat breakfast, exercise regularly. Maintain your normal weight, don't smoke, don't drink excessively, sleep eight hours a night, and don't eat between meals. Just common, wise, just common sense, wise statements that we would all do very well to carry out. But again, remember our motive. Why do we want to give attention to the flesh? Not so that you could show up on the cover of some magazine, but so you can be the very best for Christ that you can be. Third area that he was an example. We're to follow the example of Jesus in growing spiritually. Notice that Luke says here that Jesus also grew in favor with God. You remember the Uncle Remus story about Briar Rabbit and the Briar Patch? Briar Fox captured Briar Rabbit on one occasion and was ready to eat him when Briar Rabbit said, Go ahead and eat me. Do whatever you want to me. But whatever you do, please, please don't throw me in the Briar Patch. Please. Anything but that. He finally convinces Briar Fox that the worst possible fate for Briar Rabbit would be thrown into the Briar Patch. So Briar Fox does that. Throws him into the briar, briar patch. But instead of being the worst possible fate, it, it was life's greatest delight for Briar Rabbit. And from the Briar Patch, he cries out with great enthusiasm, I was born in the Briar Patch. This is what I was made for. Now apply that story to your spiritual life. 
Spiritual life is something you were made for. It's what you were redeemed for. You and I were redeemed, yes, to be reconciled to a holy God, but we were also redeemed to go on and, and, and be discipled and glorify God. Grow in our love for God. Grow in our spirituality. It's what we were made for. We weren't made just to get saved and sit back and soak and be satisfied. We were saved to grow and be conformed to the image of Christ. Let me give you some principles of that. First of all, the principle of communion. We can grow spiritually by the principle of communion. I think of Jesus in Mark 1.35. It said before daylight, he'd gone out to a place of solitude and he got alone with the Father. Remember, everybody was looking for him and when they finally found him, they said, Lord, what are you doing? Don't you realize everybody is looking for you? But it was important for Jesus that the first thing he would do was commune with his Father. Whatever it took, he didn't let anything press in on him and take that away. The principle of communion. Getting alone with God. It's why I've challenged you to set aside at least one hour a week. Everybody, one hour a week that you're going to devote to prayer, to intercessory prayer. Communion with God. Second principle. Principle of concentration. Now what do I mean by that? Jesus said in John 15, I'm divine, you're the branches, you can do nothing apart from me. We need to concentrate on Christ in our life and concentrate on his word. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, we need to be like newborn babes with the word of God, drinking it in that, that we might grow thereby. And so concentrating on Jesus, concentrating on his word. Not letting anything interfere with that. Then the principle of addition. Remember what Peter said in 2 Peter 1? He said God's given us everything we need uh, in salvation. But he said add to your faith. Peter said add to your faith virtue. And to virtue knowledge. And to knowledge self-control. And to self-control perseverance. And to perseverance love. Because if these qualities are in you in abundance, you will not be unprofitable for the Lord. Addition. That's the part you and I do every day. Our, our determination to be all that we can be for Christ. Not only the principle of addition, but also the principle of subtraction. Uh, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12 that we need to lay aside every sin and, and, and all of the encumbrances. All the, all the things in life that are going to hurt us as we run our race for Christ. The writer of Hebrews says we need to be willing to lay all of that aside. Subtraction. Then the principle of dedication, 2 Timothy 2, 2 to 5. Paul used the images there of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And you look at all three of those, soldier, athlete, and farmer. And what are they known for? They're known for their dedication and their devotion. And Paul said to Timothy, 
You look at those three as an example of how a believer ought to be in his Christian life. Dedicated. And then finally here, the principle of separation. 2 Timothy 2, 15 and following. He said to Timothy, to guard your doctrine, your your speech, present yourself to God. Have nothing to do with empty chatter. Separate from certain things in the world. Those principles right there that will help us grow spiritually. Ask yourself, am I growing spiritually? Am I loving God's word more? Is God's wor- am I allowing God's word to correct my life where I'm, where I'm going astray? Is God's word, is it that compass that's bringing me back on course? Am I allowing the Word of God to be that foundation of my belief system and my worldview? Is is that process happening in my life? Am I being more and more conformed to the image of Christ? How will I know if I'm being more conformed to the image of Christ? Because the fruit of the Spirit will be more evident in my life. If I miss my time with the Lord, do I really miss it and can't wait to get back to it? Am I loving God's people more? Do I love Christian fellowship? And do I love Christian fellowship to build up other believers, let them build me up, and together we carry out the Great Commission? Am I more available as a servant of Christ than I used to be? Am I more involved in ministry than I was five years ago, say? Do I have a burden for lost people to know my Savior? Those are just some of the marks that we're growing spiritually. You see, folks, you can be in the Christian life 40, 50, 60 years and still be a babe in Christ. Maturity in Christ is not measured strictly in the number of years you've been a Christian. But are you really growing and maturing spiritually in your faith? Lastly, we're to follow the example of Jesus in growing socially. Not only did he grow in favor with God, but Luke says here that he grew in favor with men. Now folks, that's an interesting phrase right there, that he grew in favor with men. Because we know that oftentimes in his public ministry, many fell out of favor with Jesus. But think about this. Who was it that fell out of favor with Jesus? It was the spiritually proud. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. Who thought they'd arrived already? They they didn't need Jesus. But the people who recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, that the, the sinners and those who realized they needed a spiritual doctor, they needed a Savior, they needed a Messiah, they were drawn to Christ. They gravitated to Him. I think of Zacchaeus going so far as climbing up in that tree. Because he wants to see Jesus as Jesus. I think of Mary, the, the sister of Martha, who went into that room and broke that uh, alabaster flask of ointment and, and, and anointed the feet of Jesus. I think of that woman in the crowd who said, I've just got to touch the, the hem of his garment. I, I think of all the crowds in, in, in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that, that they, they 
flooded that area where Jesus was. They wanted to hear him teach. They were, they were hungry because they said, He teaches not like these other leaders we have, but one who has real authority. The multitudes of people couldn't wait to be around Jesus. He grew in favor with them. What was the key? They knew Jesus loved them. They knew Jesus loved them. Do people know that you love them? Doesn't mean you always agree with them. What they're doing or what they might believe. But, but, do, you, but do you love them enough even to tell them hard things when they need that? Are you a true Christian friend of people? Do, do they know that you love them? People will respond to that. Do people see authentic Christian faith and love in us? You see, where did we get the idea that as believers we're supposed to try to go out and be an offense to everybody? The gospel is an offense. Don't get me wrong. If we tell people the truth of the Word of God, that in and of itself will be an offense to some degree. But that doesn't mean that I need to try to add to that and just decide I'm going to be an offense. There needs to be hospitality in me. I need to be a friend to people. I need to reach out to people, care for people. I need to grow socially. Christianity is not some hermit religion where we shut ourselves off from everybody. Again, this text says Jesus, he grew intellectually, he grew in wisdom, he grew physically in stature, he grew spiritually in favor with God, and he grew socially in favor with man. I want you to think about your own life today. This past year, have you taken any steps to grow in these areas of your life? Have you grown intellectually in the faith? Have you committed any scripture to memory? If you've not read through the Bible this year, have you at least read through some big chunks of the Bible? What kind of goal do you need to make for 2015? That you're going to read more of God's Word. You're going to read more of Christian classics and theology and, and what writers have said that, that enrich our understanding of the Word of God. What kind of goals will you set for yourself to do that? How about your physical life? Are there things that you need to deal with to be a healthier person? To get on top of that. Do that. Again, the motive is so you will have the good health and the energy that you need to be a servant of Christ. But what do you need to deal with physically? How about socially? Are you sociable to be around? Are you gracious? Are you encouraging to others? Would lost people want to engage in a conversation with you? Grow socially. Commit every category, every area of your life to Jesus Christ. That in this next year, I'm going to take some steps to grow in each of these areas. Every single one of these areas. 
Because I want to present myself as a workman unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. I want to be the best that I can be for Jesus. And if Jesus grew in all of these different areas, I need to grow in all those different areas. 